Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So I'm traveling across the pond today and so excited to be speaking to Kate Summerscale, the best-selling UK author who has just published her newest book, The Wicked Boy, which we'll be chatting about today. Thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. This is a book about a Victorian-era crime, but you've written others from this time period as well including Mrs. Robinson's disgrace and the suspicions of Mr. Witcher. What, what draws you to the Victorian age? Um, I find it a very rich and intriguing period that um, in which lots of the institutions and buildings and books that, I, that sort of fill my life um, are rooted there. So it's a period that feels kind of far away and strange and at the same time very familiar, very recognizable. And so to me that puts it at the perfect distance of being at once mysterious, but also something I have a chance of of understanding how people thought and felt and uh, why people did what they did. Let's start where you start in your book, Two Young Brothers from East London in 1895, Robert and Natty Coombs who suddenly find themselves alone. Can you talk about them and their situation? What do they do and where do they go? Sure. They were um, two brothers, aged 13 and 12. Uh, They lived in East London, the sort of far east of London, beyond Spitalfields and Whitechapel and the, the famous East End in a kind of new urban sprawl along the river. And um, they got up in the morning of the 8th of July, 1895, during a very hot spell in London. It was a a drought. And uh, they set off 
from East London to a cricket ground in the northwest of London, Lord's Cricket Ground, the most famous cricket ground in the country, where the most famous cricketer of the day was playing that day. And uh, before they left, they gave their rent book to a neighbour, explaining, Robert, the older boy, explained that their mother was away in Liverpool visiting family, and their father was, as usual, away at sea, and he worked as the ship steward. And uh, Robert asked the neighbour if he could pay the rent on their behalf, because they were going to Lord's to watch the cricket. And with that, off the two brothers went on their, on their holiday, in effect. And for the next ten days, they proceeded to enjoy themselves in, in all kinds of ways, while their parents were apparently absent, uh, going to the seaside and the theatre, uh, eating out in coffee houses, buying lemonade and ice cream, and generally enjoying themselves. And they saw some theatre as well. Yes, they went to see a, um, a nautical melodrama called Light Ahead, uh, which was uh, set on the high seas. They live very near the docks, and a lot of the, the stories and the atmosphere of that place and time was to do with travel and adventure and exploration of the world. Um, Robert himself had, had once been to sea with his father, who habitually sailed on the cattle ships going from the London docks to New York and back, and, and a lot of the fantasies of the time revolved around uh, treasure islands, pirates, sea adventures, monsters of the deep, this kind of thing. And as they partake in their adventure, they decide to enlist someone to help them, a man named John Fox. Can you talk about how he became involved with the boys? John Fox was a, a simple-minded man, as they described him, as per witnesses described him, aged 45, who lived and worked around the docks and who had once been a colleague of uh, Robert Natty's father. He had worked with him at sea as a sailor. But John Fox had suffered a traumatic experience at sea. He'd been caught in a fire on a ship and he'd developed a stutter and a terror of the open sea. And from then on, he just um, lived and worked in the docks themselves and on the ships that were docked there rather than they were sailing. So Robert and Natty knew that John Fox, would, they would be able to find him, he'd be on land. And he, he being a, a very benign, kindly, and not very clever fellow, that um, he might go along with their schemes. He was like a sort of third child, a kind of playmate. But he also had the great advantage, because he was an adult, the boys could ask him to go to a pawnbroker and pledge various items from the house and raise some money with which they could, uh, which they could spend on more adventures and meals out and so on. Can you describe the brothers, their ages and what they looked like? Yes, um, Natty was 12 and uh, he was still at school, so at this time it was quite a recent innovation, but um, it was compulsory for all boys, working class as well as middle class, to attend state-run schools. Um, But Natty was in his last year of school. Robert had just left school a few weeks before. There was a year separating them. 
this um, was for Robert was 13, but Robert looked much the more substantial boy. He was um, uh, quite a sort of solid, handsome, almost a young man, uh, very well turned out. He took pride in his appearance and um, dressed in, in blazers and flannel trousers, whereas Natty was still wore the clothes of a child, short trousers, and he, he was much slighter than his brother. So it looked as if there was a much bigger age gap between the pair of them than, than there actually was. And uh, it seems they were pretty inseparable. They they sort of played together, got up to things. They were, they were close in age, and they, they had the same interests and pursuits. Could you talk a little bit more about their father, where he was exactly, and how long he'd been gone? Their father um, worked as a ship steward on ships that uh, sailed to New York, collected cattle, and brought them back to London for slaughter and sale. And he was away from home for probably about six out of every seven weeks of the year. So he was, he was rarely home. Um, but, but he, when he arrived, he would bring money and leave it for the family to spend during his absences. But things were pretty tight financially. This was a, a working class family, um, who aspired to certain respectability with a front parlour, musical instruments for the children. They bought um, magazines like The Strand, which published the Sherlock Holmes stories. But they were, they were barely in this respectable class. Um, and the boy's mother, Emily Coombs, um, she struggled in her husband's absence to, to feed and clothe these hungry, growing boys. So they tripped along, as you've mentioned, for a number of days. But that obviously couldn't continue on and on forever. Could you talk about some of the suspicions people began having about the boys and their lifestyle? Yeah, but to begin with, um, the neighbours accepted Robert's story that the mother had gone to Liverpool to visit family. Um, for, he told some people it was for a funeral, that, um, that, a, that a wealthy relative had died and that they were due to come into some money. Uh, but as time passed, uh, they, the neighbours, and particularly the boy's aunt called Emily, who lived um, a few you know, a few blocks away, became uneasy about the fact she hadn't heard from her sister-in-law, that no one had mentioned beforehand that she was going to be away. And the neighbours in particular started to notice in this very hot summer, after about a week, a strange smell emanating from the house. And um, they became disturbed by this and again sent word to the boy's aunt, Emily, saying, well, what's going on? We're, we're uneasy. Something's, something's not right. Um, so Emily called at the house uh, three times, in fact, uh, with eventually she brought with her a friend. Um, but it was only on the third occasion that she really forced her way in to the house, stormed through. She got Robert to open the door to her. She stormed through and found that the three of them, Robert, Natty and John Fox, had been playing cards in the back parlour. And she demanded to know where their mother was. And if I recall correctly, John Fox was also wearing their father's new suit, which was also, of course, quite suspicious. Yes, the neighbours had noticed that John Fox was parading around in Mr. Coombs's clothes, which um, 
Robert had, um, in fact, offered him and had assured John Fox that their mother had, had said that he could wear these clothes because they were too small for Mr. Coons. But, but it didn't, it didn't look good that he was, he was parading round in, in Mr. Coons's Sunday best suit. So he was, fell under a great deal of suspicion for what he knew and his part in, in the whole business, because there he was sitting with the boys in a house that um, that was once people went in and and especially once they went upstairs was um, an absolute stench pervaded the house of rotting flesh. And just to clarify, the mother's name was Emily, and the aunt's name was Emily. Yes, <laughs> as in many of these, yes, the Victoria and the family tended to all have the <laughs> to share names, which is uh, which is a technicality you have to contend with when writing about them. Yes, so there was Aunt Emily Coons, and there was also the mother Emily Coons, um, uh, who was uh, who who the sister was the sister-in-law of the aunt who came in. So Aunt Emily doesn't take no for an answer. She pushes past the brothers and John Fox and makes her way upstairs to the brothers' mother's bedroom, despite protest from the boys. Can you talk about what she discovers? Yeah, she the door was locked, but she sent for a key from the landlady. Robert refused to um, to give up the key to her and uh, when she went into the room she she was confronted with the sight of a woman's body on the bed so badly decomposed that she was unrecognizable but she assumed correctly it was her sister-in-law and um, she'd been and when she went back downstairs straight back down and by this time Natty had climbed out of a window and run away but Robert was still there, calmly waiting, and um, Aunt Emily asked him what had happened, and he said, I killed her, Auntie. I did it with a knife. And um, he explained that ten days earlier, he had, um, he and, and Natty had plotted to kill her mother, and he had done it, and she had been lying there on the bed ever since. And she tells him he is a, a wicked boy, hence the title of your book. Yeah, she says, you're a bad, wicked boy. And then, then immediately she and her friend, who had accompanied to the house, then turn their attentions to John Fox and uh, ask what his part in the crime was, while also sending for a policeman. And this case becomes a, a priority for the police, doesn't it? It becomes a, a, a huge story, but locally the, the street is so soon swarming with curious um, neighbours and, and locals, and it but also um, very quickly a national story. It's such a, a weird and disturbing tale, not only the, the matricide, but a matricide by such a, a young and apparently properly turned out. This isn't a kind of, you know, sordid slum death. It's um, and it, 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 by a sort of apparently intelligent and, and capable boy and who, not, who planned the killing, apparently, and then very cunningly covered it up afterwards. So the combination of, of horror but also of calculation 
makes it a peculiarly compelling case and a, and a, and a mysterious, sort of inexplicable one. So how did their, their father find out what had happened and what was his reaction? Well, I was, um, was sort of startled to realize that there was no way of getting the, the news to the father while he was halfway across the Atlantic, which is where he was when both when the murder occurred and when the body was discovered. So he reached New York about four days after the discovery of the body and a boat um, when sailed out to meet his ship as it approached the harbour and um, a newspaper was handed to him in which the crime was reported. So it was being reported in the American press as well. And so he was on the ship as it sailed into New York reading about the death of his wife and the arrest of his two sons for her murder. And he apparently sort of collapsed in shock. But by the time they really reached land, he had composed himself enough to give a kind of press conference, in effect. A, a whole gaggle of reporters had gathered and and pressed for interviews um, with him about his feelings and his... Um, speculations about the the cause of the crime and how it took place and 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 he 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 spoke at some length to the press about it even having not um not spoken to the authorities in britain or, or to his children so what did the police determine was the cause of death for mrs coombs and she was stabbed through the heart and um, so there are there are two stab wounds that are found through her heart, and um, the the inquest gives the stabbing as the cause of death. The, the inquest jury went and examined her body as well. Um, it was the, when Robert gave a more detailed account of the crime, there was some sort of unexplained elements, like he he said that the way the crime the murder took place was that. His brother, Natty, gave a signal, a sort of double cough through the wall. Robert was sharing a bed that night with his mother, as he often did, and he had put a knife under the pillow. So when Natty coughed from the next room and Robert heard it through the wall, according to Robert's account, Natty later denied it, uh, Robert pulled the knife from under the pillow and stabbed his mother. Um, he, It emerged later that... He had then gone to Natty's room and summoned him to witness what he'd done. He'd said to Natty, I've done it. And Natty said, you ain't. Went through, saw the mother, and mother was groaning in the bed, so not quite dead. And it was went unexplained what happened afterwards. And I wonder if the, the fact there were two stab wounds through the heart actually horrifically indicate that Robert then stabbed her again. And this wasn't something that was explored at the time because it didn't really go to the... There was no question about who had killed her. There was a straightforward confession, and it was borne out by the post-mortem. Robert actually goes back into the room by himself, tells Natty he's going to stay with their mother for a while, and then comes back out, and it's all over, right? 
Yeah, and um, and and that's where and I, I I wonder whether he had to uh, attack her again, in effect. And or she was also discovered with a, a, a pillow over her face when when the body was found. So um, that too might have had something to do with you know what he was doing in the room at that time. It was it was never really investigated, but it's a um, quite sort of disturbing hiatus, a poor, you know, an, a, and a sort of invisible thing that even Natty did, didn't know what, what happened there. Absolutely. So your description of the trial is quite compelling. Let's start with the prosecution. What was their evidence and how did they decide to prosecute Robert? Well, in some ways, it was um, apparently pretty straightforward because they had a confession and um, and it was it matched all the the testimony the circum the circumstances that the police had been able to establish. Um, and at the beginning of the trial, when Robert was asked, "Do you plead guilty or not guilty?" he said, "Guilty." And his um, lawyer had to interrupt, had to intervene and say, "Not guilty." He pleads, and the judge said, "Make him say not guilty." And the defence was not guilty by reason of insanity. So the prosecution had to prove two things. They had to prove that Robert had killed his mother, easy enough, but they also had to prove that he'd been rational when he did it. And to this end, their main witness was Natty, who originally had been arrested and charged with murder alongside Robert, and who both of them had admitted had been part of the conspiracy to murder the mother. But the prosecution needed him as a witness in order to really nail it on Robert and um, and to establish that Robert had planned the crime, that it was premeditated, and therefore, the prosecution argued, was not an act of madness. So Natty's testimony was absolutely key, and um, it occupied much of the first day of the trial. It was a very sort of... So on unhappy circumstance, I'm sure that these two brothers who had conspired together decided that their mother must die for their, their reasons were now pitted against one another and their, their fates kind of utterly diverged so that Natty was cast as the innocent witness and um, Robert as the evil perpetrator. What happened to, to John Fox? John Fox was also tried alongside Robert in the Old Bailey, but he was not charged with murder. He was charged with being an accessory after the fact. So there was no evidence that he participated in the killing itself, but uh, many people suspected that um, he couldn't have been innocent of... He, he must have known what the boys had done and been helping them to cover for the crime. Um, not least because of the smell in the house in the days that he was there. It seemed in, implausible that he had had no suspicions about it. Um, he, however, said that he had a very bad sense of smell, as well as being very dim-witted, <laughs> um, and that his, his smell, sense of smell had been ruined by years working on the ships and in the docks. Um, which, given that he'd spent years on, on cattle ships and, uh, and all the, the extraordinarily pungent, strong smells at the docks, was actually um, quite possible. 
Yeah, yeah, a, a little convenient, but I suppose plausible. <laughs> Can you talk a little more about the insanity defense? How, how common was it in Victorian-era England, and what were some of the thoughts about that kind of defense amongst the general population? Well, it had become really astonishingly common um, in the, the 20 years up to the 1890s, the proportion of, of um, insanity defences had risen massively so that I can't remember the figures, but maybe sort of one in four homicide cases, there would be an insanity, insanity would be um, a plea. And, uh, and, and sometimes, you know, fairly often the juries would, would go along with it. Uh, they, then as now the, the idea of the insanity plea rested in theory, on whether the perpetrator knew right from wrong at the time of the crime. But more and more, the expert witnesses, the mad doctors and alienists who testified in court arguing that, that the defendants were insane, were, were invoked this idea of irresistible impulse, so that, that people might be subject to an emotion so strong that they could not resist it, even though they knew it was wrong. And this was a sort of different twist, or, and, it, and it opened the door to people being um, deemed insane simply because they were subject to a, an overwhelming um, passion, desire for uh, uh, hatred, desire for revenge. And in Robert's case, and this was quite become an increasingly common plea, the, the diagnosis that the doctors tried to give him was that he was suffering from homicidal mania, which was slightly a sort of self-fulfilling kind of diagnosis. He had a he he had murdered because he had an overwhelming desire to murder, and um, this was resisted, as you can imagine, by many of the lawyers. But it also it had some traction, and um, the that some juries were sympathetic to the idea that somebody might just have this impulse and uh, not be able to control their actions. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Revis Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside 
The Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Much is made during the trial about the influence on boys from Penny Dreadfuls. Can you talk more about these pulp novels? what they were exactly, and Robert's obsession with them. Yeah, they, um, th there was an argument that... So what happened, when the, when the boys were arrested in mid-July, the police found a, a collection of Penny Dreadfuls in the back parlour where they'd been found playing cards. And the Penny Dreadfuls was a cheap um, magazines, pulp fiction... Many of them were reprints of um, American dime novels published in New York. And they were adventure stories of various kinds, some more violent than others. And sort of fantasies about, um, some of them was a sort of science fiction, fantasies about submarines and adventures at sea and wild, and wild inventions. And others were tales about cowboys and Indians and um, battles out in the Wild West. Uh, others were crime stories told either from the point of view of the villains um, or the detectives, typically in New York or London. So they were just sheer entertainment, lots of action, lots of dialogue, um, not very reflective, but very exciting stories. They seem, I read quite a few of the ones that were actually found in Cave Road in the back parlour of Robert's house because they were named in court and I was able to track some of them down. By today's standards, they're very, very sort of mild and, and innocent uh, in most respects, though there are some very ugly sort of racist elements to them and, um, and some quite disturbing violence towards women. 
but at the time they were there was a great anxiety that these um, publications were actually creating a criminal class that the children the working class children who had been taught to read in the new state schools were coming out of school and just reading this stuff which was giving them ideas about theft and burglary and um, general antisocial behavior but also even murder in some cases and uh, to my surprise um, the inquest jury when the main conclusion they came to was that um, the penny dreadfuls had actually in effect caused the murder of Emily Coons and the jury called on the government to um, to limit or ban the publication of these stories so it was a kind of there was a moral panic about the penny dreadfuls about pulp fiction and its effect on young working class men that um, seemed to me to, to very much prefigure the kind of anxiety that takes hold about um, computer games or videos or comic books or violent movies um, throughout the 20th century and, and now. Can you talk about some of the witnesses for the prosecution and the defense? How did they influence the trial? Well, it, it was fascinating to... to um, to read the transcript of the trial and all the witness statements. Um, there were also witness statements held in an, an archive in London that, uh, that I found and read, because they give such sort of deep, often banal detail about the daily lives of everyone in, in this part of London at the time. So the friends and neighbours and family all testified about the relationship between Emily and her sons, the, the the way they lived and what they did. And there were also witnesses, um, the family doctor gave evidence about how unstable Emily Coons was, about how she was hysterical and used to laugh and cry at the same time. And there were school teachers who gave evidence about Robert and Natty, um, how unusually bright both of them were, um, and how they, in fact, have been very compliant um, model schoolboys, the very opposite of, of the kind of rebellious, um, antisocial creatures that some of the, uh, the early newspaper reports had depicted. So the story became quite complicated at that stage by the fact that there were many people willing to testify to Robert in particular, to his, um, his good behavior and his academic and musical talent. And so the, the sense of him as some out-of-control atavistic creature who was like a throwback to um, some primitive man which the press had depicted on, on the initial discovery of the crime was, was definitely complicated. And the, the whole thing seemed to me to become much more complex and throw up all kinds of questions about the atmosphere and the events that took place within the household in the weeks and months leading up to the murder. On the surface, from anyone just casually observing the family, the mother seemed to dote on the boys. She spoiled them, bought them nice clothes, as their budget could afford anyway. But there was also this underlying tension between the boys and the mother. Yes, and in fact, the um, 
the greatest tension seemed to be between the mother and Natty, the younger boy. Um, she, her, a, a friend of hers, one of her close friends, reported that she continually com complained about Natty and how he used to cheek her. He, she, he talked back. Um, he was insolent and disobedient to her. And that on, and on the day, um, before the night on which she was killed, she had uh, reportedly beaten Natty, given him a hiding for stealing food, that is, for taking his more than his share of the household's food. And um, she had threatened Robert with a hiding too. And this it was after this beating that Natty said to Robert, um, asked him to kill her. And uh, Robert agreed, and they decided on this signal. Of course, for a Victorian parent to discipline a child with, by giving them a caning or a hiding is completely normal, acceptable. But um, it, we don't know what kind of a beating she gave Natty, and with what kind, with what force, or with what emotion. And I suspected that something was going on there, given the fact that both brothers agreed afterwards that she deserved to be killed, um, that, was, that was way beyond the even the Victorian norms for a parent disciplining a child. There was one publication, this was a, a subject that went completely unexplored to be, to, as far as I could see for a long time. So nobody even even questioned whether the mother might have been behaving in a way that that provoked her sons or that traumatised them in some sense. Um, but there was just one publication, which was uh, a magazine put out by the Society for the Protection of Prevention of Cruelty to Children, which had only existed for a, for a few years, 11 years, I think, um, in which it said we would be very interested to know the relations of this mother and her murderous son. And it said, brutality begets brutality. And it hinted very heavily that its suspicion was that there had been violence in the household that had ultimately culminated in the murder. And the, the um, author, the anonymous author of this piece said, people are unwilling to believe that parents can inflict pain on their children but, or cruelty on their children but what we have seen in the 11 years of our existence going around the country investigating reports of, um, of brutality in homes has convinced us that, that it happens, that it's much more common than anyone thinks. So this was a sort of nascent movement of, you know, for the first time there was a sort of naming of the fact that a parent who is assumed to have total power over their children and um, and liberty to, to to treat them as they as they would there was that there was there was slightly a turning point here where just at least one voice was saying that, you know that that maybe the a child could be hurt by their parent and needed to be protected from a parent. A letter turns up from Emily Coombs to her husband, Robert, which reveals that they may have quarreled before he left. Can you talk about this letter and what insights it offers into their relationship? 
It's a very sort of agitated letter in which she's trying to reassure her husband. So she wrote it just um, a day after he left home, two days after. It was on his birthday. It was on the day before she was killed. And um, she, she alludes to this quarrel. It sounds as if the quarrel was about money, about her spending too much money because she's protesting to him. She, he doesn't know how much it takes to feed these hungry, growing boys. Uh, but it, it also sounds a little bit as if it's about his suspicions of her sexual fidelity, about her behavior when he's away from home, because she says, don't go away thinking there's someone comes to your house when you're away. So it sounds pretty feverish, you know, that he's gone away with and they're leaving this anxiety, criticizing his wife for her management of the household budget and also mistrusting her um, adherence to her wifely duties and um, thinking that she might be having an affair or, or worse. And, uh, and so, I, you know, in this tiny house, I imagined that... Um, Imagine that the sons would have been aware, if not of the detail of the argument, of the tensions between their parents and um, the fact that they revolved around these these issues of sexual loyalty and financial anxiety. And she also reveals herself in the letter as an incredibly um, affectionate and in some ways very sort of trusting. She defends Robert in the letter to her husband and she, diff she sort of says that he felt sorrow at seeing his aunt upset. His aunt was upset again about money so, uh, and, and the fact that her husband's greengrocer business is not flourishing. So there's a lot of tension in these areas and, um, and, and it was very, a very good reminder for me reading this letter, which was never produced in court but was held in a file in an archive. A reminder that um, of her anxious affection towards her boys and her husband, and that uh, that these things are not necessarily incompatible with being a, a sort of frightening parent, which I believe she was. Uh, she can be a, a loving parent and also a frightening one. Can you talk about the jury's verdict in Robert's case? Yeah, they um, the, ju the the judge pretty strongly directed the jury to find him simply guilty because uh, the the evidence produced by the defence, the medical evidence of his insanity, the judge was clearly unconvinced by and um, thought it was just a a ruse to um, get him off the hook. But the jury seems to have chosen to go along, even though they they do didn't really believe him to be insane. Their first um, the verdict was, they said that Robert was guilty, but they recommended that he be shown mercy, i.e. not hanged. But the judge refused this verdict. He said, no, you, it's either guilty or it's guilty but insane. You, you know, no, nothing, um, no, nothing about mercy. So they came back with a guilty but insane verdict, which was clearly designed. All the newspapers agreed that it was, it was simply designed to, um, to make sure that Robert, as a 13-year-old boy, was spared the gallows, that he wouldn't be hanged for the murder of his mother, um, because the insanity verdict was, was never was meant that it, the murder was not punishable by death. 
So Robert is sentenced to a place called Broadmoor Asylum. Can you talk about Broadmoor Asylum? What, what kind of reputation did it have in 1895? And how did Robert fare inside? Broadmoor um, had a, was the most notorious asylum in the land. It was a criminal lunatic asylum, and so it was the place that dangerous and violent criminals were sent if they were deemed insane. Um, and it, it was assumed also that people who were sent there, that they threw away the key, that you were there for life, you know, you were just locked up at Her Majesty's pleasure, as they put it, meaning that only by the Queen's decree could you be released. And in fact, um, that wasn't the case. People were discharged from Broadmoor once the doctors decided they were sane. But also, the, um, the, the place itself I discovered on, on reading the, the patient's individual records and the, um, the history of the asylum was uh, almost idyllic in some ways for some of the inmates. It was set on a ridge in Berkshire, beautiful countryside. The doctors and staff considered that they were running a hospital and they were very insistent that the inmates were patients and not prisoners and that they needed to be treated with gentleness and understanding and that they should be rehabilitated by being introduced to, by being learning trades and crafts. Um, Robert, when he was there, learned to be a tailor. He learned, he had his own allotment, learned to garden. He learnt to play the violin and the cornet, played in the asylum bands. He played cricket and billiards. And he, they, he had access to a library with, um, with a much sort of richer range of material than he would ever have found in the mean streets of East London. And he was surrounded also, he was in a particular ward where the more educated and socially able inmates uh, were, lived. And um, he was surrounded by some very educated men. And it was a peculiar kind of finishing school for him, even though the people around him, most of them had committed very disturbed and horrific crimes. Um, the regime was such that he was given a, a kind of a stability, a strange family, institutional family, that seems to have enabled him to regain his equilibrium and uh, even to flourish. Can you talk about Robert's release from Broadmoor Asylum? What were the, the conditions of his release? He applied um, for it to be released a, a few times without success. But in 1912, the superintendent of the asylum and the attendants there recommended him for release, saying that they believed not only was he sane, but that there was a low risk of him reverting or you know, becoming unstable if he were discharged. So um, the Home Secretary, the King, as it now was, Victoria died, we were now in 1912, you know, it's a whole different era that Robert had been in Broadmoor for 17 years and was 13 years old. So what a strange thing to have grown up in this place and then to be sent out into a world that was utterly changed, where there were now motor cars and <laughs> suffragettes. And, and he, um, he was at first sent to a kind of halfway house, a colony in the Essex countryside, where he, his um, work 
and accommodation was lightly supervised. But then he was, that was successful, so he was allowed in 1914 to emigrate, to leave Britain and sail for a new life in Australia. And it's in Australia that he meets up with his brother, Natty, is that correct? Yes, Natty, in the meantime, while Robert had been in Broadmoor, had pursued a life as a stoker on steamships, shoveling coal into the furnace that drove the engine. Very brutal work, really. Um, and Natty was, you know, scarred with the, the, the effects of it by the time Robert came out of Broadmoor. There was a really extraordinary irony to the thing that that Natty had been deemed completely innocent and had paid no price for the crime, but he'd had this sort of brutal working life, whereas Robert had been punished to the full, but his punishment consisted of taking him into the countryside and um, educating him and giving him skills and capacities and... That, that he could never have dreamt of if uh, he hadn't committed this murder. So anyway, the brothers were reunited in Australia, and both of them were served when the First World War broke out uh, in the Australian Armed Forces. Can you talk about his, his experiences in World War One? He gets pretty unlucky and sent to fight in Gallipoli. Yes, well, being sent to Gallipoli at all is a very unlucky thing to begin with because it was almost the most horrific kind of battle and gruelling and thankless. Uh, but, yeah, so Robert, so he was in the first film landings of Gallipoli and he, um, because of his musical ability, he had been assigned to the battalion band and the bandsmen doubled up when they were in battle as stretcher bearers. That is, they were the ones who went out into the battlefield and collected and tended to, administered first aid and um, and rescued wounded soldiers. Um, Gallipoli, as, as elsewhere, this was very, very dangerous work because the stretcher bearers were unarmed and they would go out just under fire to, um, to rescue the wounded and then carry them down these steep gullies, also being shot at um, by Turks in the hills uh, to the medical clearing stations. Um, and on the in the first few days of Gallipoli, Robert's um, service as a stretcher bearer was so outstanding that he was named in the battalion history and he was um, recommended for a military medal. Um, he was so sort of fearless and, and staunch in going forward and, and rescuing the wounded. And he's hit a couple of times, but escapes any serious injury. Yes, remarkably, he, you know, he was one of, I think it's only a fifth of the Australian forces who set out at the beginning of the war, who actually lasted the entire war without significant injury or without being killed. And many of the stretcher bearers were killed, for instance. Um, but Robert Last did not. He not only survived Gallipoli, which was something in itself, but he then went to um, the Western Front. So he was in France and Belgium. And there he, he served as the band sergeant. So he led the band. And um, 
was had a, a sort of spotless military record. So if any, if there were any test of his stability after Broadmoor, of his ability to sort of endure without freaking out, or um, that this was the the ultimate test, the entire span of the First World War and confrontation with with violence. I mean, I, it struck me that in Gallipoli, for instance, there was a lot of talk about the the bodies of the dead, the the flies descending on them, the the bloated bodies and the smell of decomposing flesh and in some ways it was like he was back in the situation you know back in the scene of his mother's corpse and the, the pain he you know the, well, the, the death he had inflicted on her and but now on the battlefields he was burying the dead and he was rescuing the wounded he was saving lives and going into this you know horrendous scene and trying to do good um so i i thought that it, you know it showed he, his resilience um but also his capacity to to cope with things that must have brought back memories of, of the terrible thing that he did when doing your research, you had a, a difficult time figuring out what happened to Robert after the war, didn't you? C- can you talk a little bit about that that investigative process? Yeah, I thought the um, it, to begin with, uh, the, the newspaper reports of Robert stopped in 1895 when he was sent to Broadmoor. So there was very rich detail about those three months or so in in that year. And at first, there wasn't uh, the Broadmoor material seemed difficult to, to get at, but I, I could find enough there to reconstruct his life there and, and to discover what, what that he was discharged. But beyond that, um, to begin with, I had no idea what became of him, and he just vanished from the British records. And the thing that gave me my big clue was that I came across a picture, just by Googling in all sorts of different ways, of a uh, of his tombstone. It was on a website for American, for Australian, um, uh, Australian cemeteries that had been documented by volunteers simply photographing and indexing gravestones. And there was Robert's gravestone. And it, so it showed me that he had lived and died in Australia. It also listed the battalions with which he'd served, which enabled me to then look for his war records and reconstruct his experience in the war. And at the bottom of the stone, it said um, it, it named the person who had erected the stone, who, who remembered him, lovingly remembered him. And that gave me my lead to find out what happened to him in Australia after the war, because I had the name of someone who had known him and cared for him. And although I didn't imagine that that person would be alive because Robert had died in 1949, um, I, I hoped that I might be able to trace the family and just get some um, information, however sketchy, about how Robert Coons had lived out his life in Australia. And I did find, um, to my amazement, that not only was unable to find, track down the family, but that the man himself who had known Robert was still living, was 95 years old and living in a nursing home in Australia 
His family, when I contacted them, told me that um, they were they were absolutely shocked when they heard what I was researching and why. And they said they had no idea, and they didn't believe their father did either, that the man he had known had killed his mother when he was a boy. Um, so this was, was very sort of startling to me, too, that a story from so long ago, from 1895, that I was working on should have such powerful repercussions in the present that I would, would, that it might actually really distress and disturb people and, and cause them to sort of uh, reconsider uh, their own family history. Because as it turned out, Robert Coons had 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 an effect on this family, had done something for the, their father, the man who was still living, he was 95, which they saw as a sort of transformative and, and, and very good he sort of, in effect, rescued their father from a bad, very bad situation. And so to them, he, uh, Robert Coons was a hero, and here was I coming with news that he was a murderer. Uh, they were understandably distressed by this. But one of the, mem one of the members of the family saw, uh, more as I did, that it was all the more remarkable what Robert Coons had done for their father, given the horror of his past and the dark thing he had done as a boy. I won't ask you to go into detail about the circumstances of the, this rescue. We can let readers be surprised by the specifics. But it's probably not too much to say that this man named Harry Mulville, as a boy, had been pretty seriously abused. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it seemed to me that... Um, that the, the although to my knowledge Robert never talked about the crime either to, to you know, he never wrote something a confession later in life or an explanation or um, a statement of remorse it seemed to me that the act he did in Australia by helping this boy was expressive of 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 all those things. It was explanatory in a strange way of the, of the murder, to my mind, because the scene which he, in which he chose to intervene and the way in which he chose to do so um, seemed to echo something about his and Natty's childhoods. Uh, but it, it, was, it was also a kind of atonement, a way of, of running the same scene and making it end differently. So what part of Australia did Robert Coombs settle down in? He was in New South Wales, so north of Sydney, in a sort of inland, but not, not too far from the coast. It was rather beautiful countryside. And he lived a very simple life uh, as a market gardener. So he, he grew vegetables and sold them. Um, and he grew very, you know, good vegetables. His peas and his tomatoes were... were especially celebrated and uh, and it struck me that this was like it was like the allotment that he'd had in Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum had given him the tools to live this simple um, simple life self-sufficient and uncomplicated and quite private um, not complicated by too many relationships there was he found something quite sort of contained and safe to do. He never married. As far as I know, he never had any relationships with women. 
and uh, and and it struck me that, that you know all this was to to ensure that he he did, he wasn't subjected to the stresses or emotions that might take him to dark places again. So, but it's it, it struck me also that there was a sort of emotional courage in his deciding to take in this this boy, Harry Marvel, who he met, because there he did he did um, he risked having a sort of familial relationship. That Harry was almost like an adopted son to him, and um, and he made a success of it. You know, he made a good a good home for the boy. Um, so that was a real achievement, uh, I, I think. You were actually able to sit down with Harry Mulville and have a conversation with him. What, what was that like? Oh, that was amazing. I, I, um, I hadn't expected to. I went out to Australia to meet the, Harry's daughter who had agreed to help me, and she showed me the places that Harry and Robert had lived. And they, I, I went to see Robert's gravestone in person, and I also met and spoke to some people who remembered him. But um, it was only when I was out there that she offered to take me to meet her father, um, and it was it was a very generous um, gesture on her part and a trusting one because the children um, were anxious that the, their father, who was 95, not be given all this information about Robert's past um, because they they simply didn't know whether he. He knew anything about it, and uh, I, I completely sort of understood how um, this was this was not uh, information that you that I was going to pass on to the to a 95 year old man if his family didn't want me to. And um, and yes, Jay trusted me to talk to him about his life with Robert without causing any distress. Well, this has been great. Where can people buy your book and find out more about you and your work? Yes, um, sure, sure. I, uh, my book's available on Amazon and all the usual sites, and I've got a website, um, katesummerscale.com, uh, which has lots of information about this book and where to buy it, and also my other books. Um, this is my fourth and has sort of interviews with me and, and that kind of thing. So should, that's probably the best place to go. And this book, The Wicked Boy, has been getting some really wonderful reviews. Yes, I've, I've been really um, thrilled with the reviews in the States as well as over here. There was a review in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, which was fantastic. Um, so, no, it's, it's lovely that, uh, that it that it gets noticed and, and, and read seriously and so on. It was a, a story that I became very, as maybe you can tell, very sort of emotionally involved with and, um, and it, was, it was an adventure for me as well, writing the book, to find out. I hoped that something good would come of it, but it seemed very improbable that there would be a sort of happy ending. But there, there sort of was. Um, and and that was that was a pretty remarkable thing to um, to go into this story knowing only about the crime, and to um, to end with this whole arc of someone's life that sort of took took them back, but that did feel quite uplifting in its way. For sure, it's it's very poetic in a sense. I mean, everybody loves a redemption story, and when you're working with the cold hard facts of true crime history. 
things don't usually turn out on a high note. Exactly. So it's quite suspenseful. The, the process of research can be very suspenseful. You don't know where it's going to take you, and you have your biases and your hopes, but you know you can't you can't twist the facts. Um, and so I felt I felt very kind of lucky with this one, really. Well, wonderful. Thank you again for sharing your time with me. Well, thank you. This has been the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. And if you enjoy the show and want to show your love, please leave a rating or a review for me on iTunes. Thank you. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Get to Old Navy. Today's the last day to get a full 50% off all Old Navy Active for the family. Shorts, tees, leggings, all Old Navy Active is 50% off at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Hurry, ends tonight. Valid 825 to 826. Excludes in-store clearance.